0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Sometimes our intentions are called seeds and those seeds are nourished and sprout and grow into things. Uh, When they're acted on, spoken of, somehow expressed and body, speech, your mind, and seeds that are not expressed aren't uh, watered. And what we water, the seeds we water, affect who we become. You know, much of our experience. And if we water our unhealthy intentions, then it tends to produce um, disease—not necessarily physical illness, but it tends to create unhealthy states of mind, become stronger and stronger, and become our dispositions. How we're disposed to act, respond, live in the world. And if we uh, act, on, act, or speak, or in some way live those intentions which are healthy, that tends to produce mental health, or tends to create a healthy disposition, uh, to be disposed to act in healthy ways in the world. Speak in healthy ways. Relate to others in healthy ways. And so, uh, starting last week, I started uh, a series of talks this month on one of the most healthy intentions, seeds a person can have, and that is a loving, loving kindness. And um, it, uh, metta, or loving kindness, goodwill, uh, is uh, a, an intention that is very popular in Buddhism, to among Buddhist practitioners, to act on, uh, to feed, to nourish. And it's been said that in some Buddhist countries, like in Sri Lanka, uh, loving-kindness meditation is the most popular form of meditation among Buddhists, much more than following the breath or any other kind of meditation. It's loving-kindness practice. And uh, certainly you find many, many people in Asia who know, have memorized the Uh, loving-kindness chant, uh, or know the very basic of loving-kindness, or even if they don't meditate with loving-kindness, they're thinking about it or express it somehow uh, in the course of their daily life. Um, Loving-kindness in our particular Buddhist tradition is uh, considered to be one of the real root or foundational attitudes towards life, to, to others, to ourselves. That is to be cultivated and, and, and developed. It's also one of the one of the uh, primary reference points for when we when we come to a juncture. Where we have to make a decision about something, about what we're going to say to someone, difficult conversation perhaps, or act in certain ways, and we're not sure. We're not sure what the wise thing is, what the wise way of acting is. Uh, loving kindness is offered as one of the reference points to help you decide is it kind is it, it expressed does it express goodwill what you 're about to do, and if it doesn 't watch out in some way or other if it doesn 't express your goodwill watch out and uh, I guess the opposite of goodwill is ill will and um, and it 's so easy I think to have ill will um, when I was coming here this evening, I thought about that. You know how easy it is to have ill will, and I was I surprised myself because there was a little thought in my mind that wasn't mine. <laughs> um, that um, when something like um, uh, when it couldn't quite it wasn't quite a thought, but it was something of the nature of um, of. Um, How easy it is because um, they deserve it. <laughs> Those people. <laughs> and um, and in fact, uh, loving kindness um, practice is meant to be the medicine that cure, cures ill will. And. Um, so uh, sometimes it's taught in Buddhism that if you have a lot of anger or animosity, uh, to cultivate uh, actively cultivate the seed, nourish the seed of goodwill, of loving kindness towards others. And in fact, if you read some of the classic um, manuals or texts, the ancient Buddhist texts about loving kindness practice, there's, a, there's one. I mean, there's one book that has a an ancient book, uh, 1500 year old, 1500 year old book of meditation uh, instruction. It's a big book. And a lot of instruction. It has a big fat chapter on loving kindness. And most of the chapter is taken up with how to overcome ill will. <laughs> uh, ill will, when it operates, is considered to be, um, uh, the, uh, to oppose or destroy our, uh, our, our tendency, our, our motivation to have good will loving kindness. And so it's very important to overcome it. And so uh, classically Buddhists are often working on this, looking at their ill will, looking at their anger, their hostility, and learning to practice with it. And in some ways I think it's very realistic that this uh, big instructions on loving kindness focuses so much on anger and ill will. Uh, It means, in my mind at least, I interpret that to mean that uh, we're not meant to uh, be uh, kind idealistically. You know, oh, you know, or pretend, kind of sugarcoat things and pretend. Oh, I'm just going to be kind and ignore the fact that I'm, you know, really pissed. <laughs> uh, we're meant to really uh, uh, be very realistic and very honest about how we're feeling, when we're going on. And then, in honesty, if we're if we're angry, then to uh, delve into it, look into it more deeply, and maybe more important, most important, to question it: Is it really uh, to the, your best interest and the best interest of others? Uh, for you to kind of dwell in that anger and ill will state. And one of the classic reflections around this is the reflection of who's really being harmed when you have hostility, when you have anger. And, um, and the answer, of course, that the tradition wants to give is it's, uh, you're harming yourself. So the tradition says, the Buddha says something like, um, something like, very vaguely, something like, um, when you are angry at someone, you're doing your enemy a, a favor. You're causing uh, you're causing harm to yourself that your enemy could never do on, on her own, his own. Because when, because the enemy is outside of you, you know, and they can wave and do all kinds of things, you know, insult you. But to get into your mind, into your heart, and turn it and you know, poison it with you know ill will and anger and hostility, and that's really gotten deep into you. And so you're doing your, you know, that's what your enemy wants, is to harm you, and now you've done it for yourself. And um, there was one of the, Keenan, Brian Keenan, is that his name? One of the hostages. Uh, and back in the 1980s, there was an English journalist, I think, who was uh, kidnapped um, in Lebanon, in Beirut, and was held hostage for many years. And uh, when he was uh, came, when he finally released after, I don't know, five, seven years, Uh, He was asked, um, did you have any resentment towards your captors? And he said something like, um, uh, uh, something like that. He said something like, um, no, I never had any resentment towards them, because then they really would have harmed me. (laughs) That's a pretty neat statement. So, you know, this cultivation of loving kindness, is is, it's easy to be excessively... uh, and ugly, sweet about it. Long before I knew about Buddhism, or Buddhist practice at least, when I was a freshman in college, somehow I decided I was going to be really nice one day.
1: <laughs>
0: really nice. I don't know what what, what kind of what got into my head. And I uh, thought I'd be really nice. And I remember uh, running into this uh, woman, on, uh, another freshman, on the uh, steps of the library. In, and um, so I was really nice to her, and she left, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like she was left holding her nose or something, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I stopped trying to be so nice, <laughs> that way at least. So. Um, So to look honestly at our anger and not to overlook it, not to uh, not to um, pretend it's not there, but to be realistic about it. And in, in being realis- realistic about it, one of the functions of loving kindness practice is to help purify us, heal us of that. And the question is, how can we do that in a healthy way, as opposed to just kind of kind of paper it over? Um, it's interesting that. Um, some uh, people who speak about, teach about loving kindness, uh, talk about it as being selfless love. And certainly here in the West, there's a huge ideal around selfless love. That somehow it's love that you're not in the equation. Not, not anything. That, you know, I suppose it means that there's nothing in it for you. You're selfless about it, you're just offering selfless love. And in some ways that's nice because oftentimes what we call love in the West is from a Buddhist perspective is entangled with a, with uh, a lot of other things besides love. So there might be a loving kindness, but then uh, which might be genuine, but then it's mixed up with maybe lust. One of the problems in Buddhist monastery in Tassahara, uh, where, where I was that, is um, for three years, it was a Buddhist monastery of men and women, and uh, people sit there for long periods of time in, in deep meditation and retreat. And uh, in that kind of context, you know, they're deep in Las Padres National Wilderness, far from, you know, television and news and, you know, life is normally lived, very still, very peaceful place. And uh, so much kind of empties, the heart just kind of becomes so open. And in that openness, where everyone feels so open, guess what? It's so easy to fall in love. It's so easy to have these warm, tender feelings for other people. And one of the problems in the monastery is that to have warmth and tenderness and appreciation uh, in a very pure way um, is rather unfamiliar for a lot of people, maybe outside of their family, or you know, outside their family, and um, and so it's often then confused with sexual desire, or sexual desire kind of is entangled with it, and sometimes it becomes a disaster. And those two, those two mixed together in that kind of context, sometimes it works out. And um, But so, you know, it's so easy to have love entangled with a lot of things. It can be entangled with desire, certainly, uh, it doesn't, more than just sexual desire. There can be all kinds of desires that uh, we're trying to fulfill, we're trying to fulfill ourselves, trying to get something, comfort, safety, um, many things uh, through the relationship. Sometimes uh, love is confused or mixed up with hope. There's, or uh, there's a kind of hope, I think something wonderful is going to happen here. And that excitement or that aspiration or that, you know, somehow it feels so good and it's mixed up with a feeling of love or tenderness or care. So uh, part of the task of loving-kindness practice is to help us tease apart all the other things that might be there together with the love or the goodwill. Uh, So certainly so we don't make make big mistakes. but. with a teaser it apart so it can be there in a, in a kind of pure way. And um, now some people um, recognize that uh, certain kinds of love are filled with attachment and clinging. And then they want to throw it all out. Forget that, I'm not going to have any of that. And that's sometimes a pity because sometimes it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes um, the fact that there might be some lust doesn't mean that you know it's kind of, it's kind of like a composite. It's different different emotions are operating together. And the fact that there's lust It doesn't mean that there's also, isn't also some really beautiful tenderness and tender kindness and goodwill and that's there as well. So how do we tease those apart? How can we drop the attachment, the clinging, the lust, and let the purity be there by itself? So uh, so so I guess I got a little bit sidetracked with the idea of this this um, a pure, selfless idea of love. Some people talk about metta or Buddhist loving kindness as being selfless, but it's—I think it may, might give the wrong impression. It's selfless in that it's loving someone else, it's having goodwill for someone else, where it, the love is expressed in wanting that other person to be happy. The love is, is felt or expressed in wanting that other, uh, uh, having a desire for the other person. (laughs) Is that the right way of saying it? Desire, not desire, how do I say it carefully here? (laughs) Not desire for the person. What? That the other
1: person.
0: Yeah, desire that the other person. For the other person's sake. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That the other person, Um, you know be happy. Not that you be happy by getting into a good relationship with that person, but that you're hoping, you're wishing for happiness for that person. That, in the Buddhism, is, the, is a pure expression of this goodwill that's called metta. And so, in that sense, it's selfless in that you're concerned about, you don't, you're not looking for love in return. It's not an exchange from that person. You know, sometimes it's nice to feel that back, friendship back or love back, but that's not the point. That's what loving kindness is. In fact, if there's an expectation or desire for an exchange, for receiving something back from the person, that's a different motivation, different attitude or feeling than loving kindness, this metta. And um, and so uh, one of the beautiful things I've seen, if you go back and, and, uh, and read about uh, people in the history of Buddhism, who were uh, recorded as exemplars of loving-kindness. And there are such people, you can find those people in the, in, uh, in, in, around, who are specialized in developing cultivating loving-kindness, and there, there can be an aura or field of this loving-kindness around them. It's really something to be in their presence, to feel that, someone who's been you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years cultivating this particular state. and. Um, and they talk you know, and they're described or they talk about having this boundless love for people, but they're never described as wanting to be loved. And I think that for many people, the idea of loving of love is is mixed up with wanting to be loved. And from a Buddhist perspective, and this is maybe i offer you a challenge, go home and Talk to your friends about this challenge. From a Buddhist perspective, the human heart has a need to love. But it does not have a need to be loved. Unless you're a child. I <laughs> think children need it. And uh, children who didn't get it as children, then it gets a little confusing when you get to be an adult. But um, I think a person who grows up in a healthy, normal way, That um, the uh, or a spiritually mature person doesn't need to be loved, but in a sense needs to love. Well, that's the natural expression there. Isn't that interesting? That principle should be there. And uh, and then there might be protests. Well, that's a poor life. That's kind of (laughs) wait a minute. No one's going to love me. Wait a minute, that's going to be lonely, you know, kind of dry. It's not going to be dry because the idea is you cultivate this very, very strong disposition that fills you so much that it just, you know, there's no space to want to be loved. You don't feel empty. You don't feel like a lack because you feel so full of this kind of this feeling, this attitude, this disposition. And it's really an amazing thing to feel almost like welling up, and welding is a good expression, like a deep current that wells up from the deep ocean, kind of comes up. It's deep welding up inside. That kind of fills your, che- your chest or your torso into your arms, everywhere, and just feels like there's this flow of metta, of loving kindness. Sometimes without even having to have a person as an object. Sometimes it's called objectless Love. Just love. The state of love is flowing there. So beautiful. And I liken it a little bit to, um, um, if you're cold, you might go look for a heater. But if you're the heater, (laughs) you don't need any of the heaters. So if you develop this very powerful glow, this warmth, this very strong warmth, you don't need to go and find someone else's warmth to warm you up. You're warm. So, in that sense, loving kindness is selfless, where you're really concerned about the other person's welfare or someone's welfare and wanting them to be happy. And it's a beautiful thing to want someone to be happy. When I when I can feel it in a pure, beautiful way, it's it's almost like And uh, the closest I can maybe describe it to you, it's almost like I have this inner sense, inner feeling, that I have a twinkle in my eye. <laughs> Isn't that nice? <laughs> you know, when I kind of feel it for someone, oh yeah, it'd be good if they can be happy, I'd like that, that'd be really great, what a neat thing, I wish that for that person. And. Um, But in classic Buddhism, uh, I don't think it's, it's it, gives, it does give the wrong impression to call it selfless because um, you don't want anything from the other person. But Buddhism also emphasizes the benefits you get from having that kind of love. And it's okay to want those benefits for yourself. Buddhism does not make a very strong, uh, doesn't make that kind of strong, hard and fast duality. Between self and others, that leads sometimes to a motivation that you, or this idea you're supposed to be altruistic. You know, you, you don't count. The only thing that counts is to help other people. You do count. One of the, express, one of the express, expressions of loving kindness, of metta, is to have goodwill towards yourself. You're important too. To want you, yourself to be happy. And it turns out that having all this desire for other people's happiness, this beautiful love for others, is one of the ways of feeling happy yourself. Not because they're saying, oh, you're such a good person, you're so great because you're so loving. Not because you don't care what other people think about you in that way. But because just the nature of that kind of purity of heart is happy producing from within. And it's not considered selfish to to, uh, to pursue the benefits of loving kindness for yourself. No, 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 it's, not self, it's not selfish to want, to want the benefits of loving kindness for yourself. And it seems a little bit odd, the juxtaposition, wanting this kind of pure love, well-being uh, for other people. And at the same time, to want to have some of the benefits of loving kindness for yourself. But I don't think, the, in classic Buddhism, there's not, that's not a paradox. It's not, those two, two things can coexist. So, um, I wanted to read to you, the seven benefits, or no, no the 11 benefits, the 11 benefits of loving-kindness. And people who do loving-kindness meditation, like a, as a regular practice, are encouraged to memorize uh, these 11. And just kind of have it there. And that, uh, it kind of helps you feel kind of happy or delighted about the possibility of what you're doing. So these, are the eleven benefits that can be expected? Now you have to do. You have to practice it well. You know, really get into it. You can't just kind of like do a little bit, and then expect all these like that. But yeah. you have to be. Re- the loving kindness has to become one's foundation. It has to be steadied, consolidated. So that's, you know, yeah, so not just kind of casual. So first one. One sleeps happily. One wakes happily. Isn't that nice? Waking up happy. One has no bad dreams. One is loved by others. Even though you don't want it. (laughs) One is loved by non-humans. So, animals... In Buddha, uh, one is guarded by devas, by the gods. It's nice, like guardian angels. right? And here it gets a little bit more exciting, or more... Fire, poison, or sword won't touch
1: one.
0: You've been around people with swords lately. <laughs> so, um, fire, poison, or sword won't touch one. And... Um, Reminds me of my friend who, um, he was going to a meeting at Zen Center. And um, there were a lot of people going to that meeting. They were, they were priests, the senior priests at Zen Center. I don't know if senior, but priests at Zen Center. And as it was dark, it was the evening. And on the way there, just down nearby, uh, someone held him up, I think, at a knife point and wanted his wallet. And he said to him, that, he said to the mugger, well, you know, <laughs> You can have all of them, my money, but it's a little bit of a hardship for me if I don't have enough bus money to get home or something, you know, or the, my driver's license, you know. And so he kind of talked for a while and negotiated. And, uh, and, uh, and then uh, uh, while this discussion was going on, another priest walked by and walked into the building. And so the guy who was being mugged afterwards came into the building and he sat down next to his friend who had passed him on being mugged. <laughs> And he said, "Do you see me talking to that guy out there?" Oh yeah, it seemed like you guys were having a nice conversation. Well, <laughs> I was being mugged. <laughs> and um, so I don't know exactly if he had, you know, you know this, you know, friendliness or love towards the mugger, but uh, I like to think that, you know, that somehow that uh, he didn't—he certainly wasn't expressing his anger, or his fear, his hostility—but he had a certain presence of mind that offered a certain kind of way of being that was beneficial. So this so the, you know, the knife didn't get him. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't believe, I, I, I'm not too superstitious about this, but I do think that um, the kinder you are, the less likely you are <laughs> to be poisoned.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> by, your, by your enemies. Now, next one you'll like, those are because you're, many of you are meditators, right? All of you. One's mind becomes concentrated quickly. Isn't that good? And in fact, one of the ways that loving kindness practice is practiced is people will do it um, uh, as a preliminary meditation before doing a mindfulness meditation. Kind of set the field, set the tone. So there's kind of a general disposition of friendliness towards one's experience, to what's happening, to oneself before starting to do the mindfulness practice. And many people will do five or 10 minutes of loving kindness, May I, often for themselves, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful. And then that kind of sets the tone and then they kind of switch to do the mind, mindfulness. But one's mind becomes concentrated quickly. I, think, I believe part of the reason for that is that when there's a genuine, sincere kind of love or kindness in the field, in oneself, one is not conflicted with oneself. And if one is conflicted with oneself, it's hard to be concentrated, become concentrated. So uh, here's another one that's really good for those of you who have spent a lot of money on cosmetics. It, it, it It could have been a lot cheaper. Because the ninth benefit of loving kindness is one's complexion becomes clear. One dies with a mind free from confusion. So some of you, have, you know, a little bit concerned about your dying. It's a healthy thing to be. It's to have health. There's a healthy way of thinking about your death and and preparing for death. I think it's one of the great things to do is to also to prepare for death. And, um, and in our tradition, the two primary ways uh, through meditation to prepare for death is to is to develop strong mindfulness and strong loving kindness. And then 11, if no higher attainment is reached, one is reborn in the Brahma realms, up there with Brahma gods, certain realm in the heavenly realms where the experience of people born in these particular mythological realms is um, their, their entire kind of subjective experience. Is that of loving kindness this kind of warmth love tenderness goodwill of loving kindness The other benefits of loving kindness is loving kindness practice is often take uh, understood to be a protective practice, and down through the centuries, uh, many Buddhists will use loving kindness practice to protect themselves in situations where there 's danger and um, I've used it sometimes that way when there's been uh, interpersonal danger, something that worried me uh, about my safety. Then I've I've, uh, cultivated loving kindness towards the person. And um, I don't don't have any way of knowing this for sure, but my impression is that um, when I've been able to shift, sometimes when I've been able to shift my inner state from fear to goodwill, that the hostility that I'm feeling Somehow she, uh, changes. The person drops hostility or it's lessened in some way. And um, so, uh, so that's one way, you know, it kind of protects us. When people feel kindness from us as opposed to fear or hostility from us, then they're more likely to treat us uh, in better ways. Uh, it's also said that the animals uh, will do the same thing. And um, I've known a lot of people who've tried that. I know one person who tried it with a dog and got bitten anyway. <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> Read the fine print. But um, down through the centuries, it's been a very common Buddhist practice uh, to cultivate loving kindness for its protective uh, benefits, but, uh, and also to chant. Uh, and There's a number of chants. There's the Loving-Kindness uh, Sutta, the Discourse on Loving-Kindness, uh, which I'll read next time, next Monday. And, um, and uh, uh, one of its functions is to memorize it and chant it. It's supposed to create safety um, in the seen and the unseen world for oneself. So is it selfish to be wanting those benefits for yourself in doing Loving-Kindness? It can be done selfishly. It can be. But it doesn't have to be. And in fact, if you do the loving-kindness practice or the loving-kindness attitude um, in its healthy form, you can't do it selfishly. Because selfishness entails clinging. And loving-kindness, you can't cling if there's pure loving-kindness. So, the two can coexist if you're able to free yourself of clinging. The the desire for benefits for yourself and the desire for the welfare of others. Um, The last benefit of loving-kindness practice is that loving-kindness practice um, is also understood to be a liberating practice that leads a person to liberation. And it leads to liberations of two kinds. Um, it leads to a particular form of liberation called the liberation of heart based on loving kindness. The liberation of heart through loving kindness. And this is where um, the loving kindness practice the, the, is not just an intention, but the intention grows to such a strong feeling or field, a dispositional field, that becomes so strong, such a glow, such a warmth, such a, such a furnace, that it radiates out from us without any limitations, hesitations, resistance, and without any divisions between the people who is, you know, any, any people at all. It goes out to everybody equally. It isn't like you say, well, I'll do it to all my neighbors, but not that one down the street. <laughs> you know, Then there's a limitation to it. There's a, there's a barrier to it. So when it goes out and becomes, uh, it's called boundless or without limits, um, when, the, when you, it's not an easy thing to do, to do that so it's really complete. But when that's really done, that's, that, that's, uh, uh, held such high esteem in Buddhism, uh, that it's called a form of liberation. Liberation of heart. And, you know, that's kind of like the end, you know, the direction that Buddhism is all going is to liberation. It's a beautiful state. And then, um, uh, and then to go further, one step further from that, and to use that limitless state, to turn around and look at the nature of the heart or the mind in a very deep way. Because the mind is so purified, so some it's so simplified, so clarified in that state. There's no conflict, confusion, agitation. It's a very, very simple and clear, clarified kind of state. And when the mind, is, the heart is very, very clarified, it's possible to see it very clearly. And when you can see into the depth of it, like you see into a pond, and you see right down to the bottom of the pond, then you know what's there, and when the mind is clarified, the heart is clarified. You can see deep into it. You see deeply what's there, and then it's possible to uproot the mind and attain not to, um, what's co- attain what's called the unshakable liberation of mind or of heart. And the unshakable liberation of mind or heart is the is liberation that comes when we've uprooted the the late the tendency. Not just the, 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 um, the tendency to cling of any kind at all. So you might not even cling. You know, I'm not clinging today, but a tendency is there. So that tendency is even given up. And the Buddha wrote, or somebody wrote, he said, Imagine... That there is an easily accessed pond of clear, delightful, refreshingly cool water. If a tired, parched, and thirsty person, scorched and exhausted by hot weather, came across this pond, the water would be used to quench both the person's thirst and hot weather fever. It is the same for a person who becomes a monk, and after learning the Buddha's teachings and discipline, cultivates loving kindness. From this, the person gains inner peace and because of this inner peace, cultivates what is appropriate for a monastic. So most of us are not gonna become monks, monastics, but uh, it's equally true for us. Um, Like a deep pond that refreshes us from our thirst. So, loving-kindness will give us a deep sense of inner peace. The peace that the Buddha was pointing to, that it's possible for all of us. So, there's a whole series of benefits from doing loving-kindness practice. But it starts with having the intention to wish welfare, well-being, on someone. It can be yourself, or it can be someone else. And primarily, when the practice gets developed, it's primarily for other people. Initially, it can be for oneself, and at some point it gets shed, like a snake that sheds its uh, its skin. And then it can be primarily for other people, for others, not just people, but other beings. And when we start doing it for other beings, It always begins with the beings, the people for whom it's easiest to do. And some people, when they've looked around for the easiest being to have loving kindness for, I've known people who've chosen their dog. Because, you know, that was just, you know, people are complicated. Or I've known people who've chosen um, individuals who they never met. There's a fair number of Buddhists who chose to choose a Dalai Lama because it's just so easy with you know, this beautiful smiley face. But, um, but uh, the idea is to find someone, find out who it is in your life, and um, who you have the purest form of this kind of goodwill, desire for their welfare, delight in their welfare, Kind of this friend, strong feeling of friend, friendship, friendliness towards um, this kind of loving kindness for that for that person, where it's pure, it's not mixed up with sexuality, sexual desire, not mixed up with other desires, not, not mixed up with wanting something back from that person. You know, sometimes a baby, you know, baby, you know, baby's not going to do anything for you. <laughs> you know, he hardly sees you, guy, guy. <laughs> And, uh, and maybe even sleeping, right? But you, have, you just have, you can feel almost like a natural kind of loving kindness. You want, the, you want the best for the baby. So some people choose babies for that reason. And um, But what I'm trying to say is, what I just recommend to you is um, spend some time going through the people that you know and find the people who you feel the most pure loving kindness for. It doesn't have to be 100% pure. Don't beat yourself up because you can't get to the 100% mark. You know, 70% is good. It's, I was gonna say, 70% is great. But if all you can get to is 20%, it's you know, it's, even 20% is good. It's a lot better than nothing. So whatever it is, don't worry about how pure it is, but find the person's p- people, the person for whom it's purest, strongest, easiest for you to have this delightful wish for their well-being and, well, and, and uh, well for their well-being and welfare, and then once you find that person, exercise that wish. It can be exercised through simply kind of thinking about it some more, wishing it, saying the phrases of loving kindness to that person. It could be exercised through imagination, imagining that person being happy. It can be exercised through action. Maybe it's doing something nice for that person. Sending them a card, sending them some flowers, anonymously or not. Making dinner, inviting them over. I don't know. So find some way, whatever way is appropriate for you, to water that seed of intention that wants that person's welfare and gives you delight. You feel delight if you want the person's welfare. Yes? Mm-hmm. One? Um, I'll repeat it. So why not you... For me, I very naturally turn my children for that.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of funny the more I do it with um, the
0: intention of doing practice,
1: I find that I so profoundly want them to be safe, to be happy, to be happy, it raises
0: fears about the ways that they can be physically unsafe. Yes. And unhappy. And it again, almost more. I just only with my baby's I don't baseball. Okay. Oh. Okay. So two things occurs to me. One is that it might be might be valuable then to look more deeply at what those what's going on with you with those fears. There might be some deep attachment, some deep thing that's going on there. I'm not saying this is you at all. But I know for some people that uh, when it's very strong, their anxiety over such things, it can be a, a symptom of, um, of sometimes unresolved issues for themselves, sometimes unresolved pain or wounds they have from the past. And so maybe there's some way of working through and looking more deeply at what's going on. Or it's a symptom that you've been watching too much local news. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, specific... Yeah, these local it's news things. Yeah, so maybe you don't, you know, you don't. The news? <laughs> well, the local news has, local news has all, all those stories about the babies that were kidnapped, yeah. right? So national news, they usually do. Well, they do sometimes. And then he said, oh, no, it's, it's epidemic. It's epidemic. It's, and so, so anyway, to look at some of what's going on. And trying to, try to understand and see if there's something there you can work through. That's one part. The other thing is that may, if you have anxiety that comes up when you do it towards someone, um, that's not the person that should be your first person. Even though it's it's easy in some way, the anxiety. Find someone else for whom anxiety is not going to happen, and just and, and do that person. And uh, classically, or one, one one classic instruction is that the first person you choose after yourself is your benefactor. Someone who fits the category of a benefactor, someone who's actually been um, concerned with your welfare and supported you—a teacher, or someone, a mentor in your life—rather uh, than a friend, and because that's kind of supposed to be kind of easier to have this kind of, uh, um, you know, easy, pure uh, concern for their welfare. Whereas uh, even with a, you know even really good friends, there's often a little little complication. You know, I love I love that person so much, but. <laughs> So, um, so anyway, uh, so that's my suggestion: is find where it's easiest for this week, and then, um, and then, uh, find some ways to water that seed, and uh, or find many ways to water it, if you'd like. If it doesn't make you happy to do that, don't do it. So, thank you.